I grew up in a house with one room. We had a room that was our living room, that was our bedroom. You know, at night we would throw mattresses on the floor and we would, you know, sleep basically, you know, head to toe. And I think, you know, I always make fun of uh, this fact that I think my parents finally stopped having children because there was no more room for us to lay down at night. Esmael Porces is telling us his story from his office in Houston, Texas. He's the CEO of Harris Health, one of the biggest public health systems in the U.S. His office overlooks the sprawling Houston skyline, a very long way from his one-room house in Tehran. Porces started his job, his first as a CEO, at a time of great stress within the healthcare system. Yes, I started March 2nd, 2020, at the height of COVID. I remember clearly, like, what are you supposed to do in the first 90 days? And, you know, basically, I just had to throw the book away because, you know, it was just completely uh, nonsense at that point because you really just had to do what you had to do to survive. It's a big job, 10,000 employees caring for more than 250,000 patients a year. And add to that, COVID-19. You know, at the time, I was a brand new CEO, right? Uh, I have never been in this role. But as a physician, um, COVID provided an opportunity for me to do what I know how to do best. So, yes, it was difficult. You know, COVID was terrible. It did terrible things to our economy. It did terrible things to our people. Uh, many people lost their lives, their livelihoods. But as a physician, I knew how to act and behave and react. I visited the hospitals every weekend. I visited the COVID units every weekend. I remember like, you know, walking into a COVID unit, you know, unzipping the, the divider that they had, you know, dividing the COVID unit from the rest of the uh, hospitals. And our employees and physicians, they were all shocked to see the CEO walk inside the COVID unit because I didn't have to. Uh, but as a physician, I, I understood First, the importance of it, and secondly, it was home. You know, I had done my training in these hospitals, so it, it was not like I was going somewhere foreign that I felt uncomfortable. I felt very much at home visiting those hospitals, and I really believe, like I said, that it was, it, it helped to the extent that it could have our employees to understand that they're not alone. But we didn't come to Houston to talk with Porce about his work, but rather his retirement. He's 60 in a country in which the average effective age of retirement is 61. So it would be natural for him to be thinking about it, but the topic is not top of mind right now. You know, I always thought 65 is a nice age. You know, I came to Harry's self and said, honey, I got to give him at least 10 years uh, commitment. So now I'm three and a half years. So my wife just asked me, so you're still 10 years, right? So you've got six and a half more years to go. And I said, well, no, honey, because now I have a 12-year commitment to the taxpayers of Harris County because the plan that I proposed to them that is on the ballot is the 12-year plan. That doesn't mean, though, that he hasn't thought and worried about what retirement might look like, especially in the context of his children and the grandchildren that he hopes may soon follow. You know, when I think about retirement, I, you know, I have to get serious with myself. I said, and I tell myself, are you really ever going to be at a point where you can step away? Uh, because I enjoy doing what I'm doing so much. Um, so, I don't know. I, I think about retirement. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not at a place where I was previously, even you know, when I had a date of retirement. I just know that at some point in the future, I, I must retire. If this was 1950, the planning for retirement might look a little different. The average life expectancy for a man in the U.S. was 66 years, 
and the average age of retirement was 68.7. You do the math. Of course, plenty of people beat the actuarial tables and made it to retirement. They could contemplate all the things typically associated with retirement, such as bouncing grandchildren on their knees, long walks on the beach, just so long as those walks weren't too long. But today, things look rather different. At age 60, Porsa can expect to live on average another 24 years, and his retirement could easily last another decade or more beyond that. The calculus of our retirement has changed rapidly, along with our conception of what retirement could be. If you had a vision board for you at 80, uh-huh. what do you think would be on it? I would be living on the beach, uh, but I would be doing consulting work for either the federal government or the Department of Justice related to correctional health care in the United States. It's a vision of the flexible retirement that many older Americans want, but that our work structures rarely support. Despite demographic trends that make older workers more important than ever, less than a third of American companies provide pathways for older workers to transition from full-time work to part-time work. But before he gets to that retirement, Porsa still has a long way to go. We've come to Houston to talk with people about the new retirement, their hopes for it, their fears about it, and how they're preparing for a retirement that could last five years or 35. We've discovered a few things along the way, starting with the notion that you can't understand people's goals for retirement until you understand those people. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, The Retirement Ladder. I'm Ken Stern. Support for this podcast comes from Corbridge Financial, making it possible for more people to take action in their financial lives for today and tomorrow. Learn more at corbridgefinancial.com. During this season, we meet six different people with six very different views of retirement. They work very different jobs. They're nurses and security guards and carpenters, and they have very different financial capacities and concerns. The one thing that unites them they all work at the same place. So Harris Health System is the safety net hospital for Harris County. Largest one in Texas, I think the fourth largest in the country as a safety net hospital. Harris Health System was created 60 years ago by votes of the residents of the county. It was created with a statutory mandate to provide acute care to the indigent, the uninsured, the underinsured. But in addition to our acute care hospitals, we have two of them, a level three trauma center at the LBJ, a level one trauma center at Bentop Hospital. We have a multitude of clinics. I believe the last scan was 40 total of primary care clinics. Public hospitals don't have the best reputation and often are perceived as the medical facilities of last resort. But Porsa doesn't see it that way. That's Harris Self in a nutshell. But one of the things I always say after I say this is that even though we have a statutory mandate to take care of the indigent, the uninsured, and underinsured, as I said, through our two hospitals and clinics, we provide care to the entire city of Houston and Harris County. We always say that we are ready for anything and we are open to everyone. Harris Health is a lifeline in Harris County, the most demographically diverse county in Texas with nearly 100 languages spoken in the Houston public schools alone. Almost three quarters of a million people live below the poverty line in the county. And according to the United Way of Greater Houston, Some 43% of Harris County households are unable to cover basic needs, including health care. I think it's just our role has become even more important. Uh, 
And the reason I say that is more important is because, unfortunately, and this is something that just saddens me every day, is the fact that Harris County, unfortunately, is home to the highest rate and the number of uninsured in the country. And that has changed since 30 years ago or 60 years ago. And, uh, it, and when I say that our role is even more important today, I think that's one of the reasons, that we have such a high number of uninsured who rely on us. Why is it that Harris County leads the nation in uninsured people? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have guessed it, right? Really? Because you're not from Texas. That's I'm why. not from Texas, no. Dr. Porson may play a pivotal role now in the healthcare ecosystem of Harris County, but his story started thousands of miles from Texas. I was born in Tehran, Iran. Uh, I was uh, one of seven children, uh, so a family of nine with my mom and dad. What did your dad do? My dad had three jobs. He basically worked 24-7. He worked for the public library system. He had a side plumbing and electrician business. And at nighttime, uh, he worked for the uh, Iranian news agency. So, you know, he would come home at, I think, 4 o'clock in the morning, sleep till 8, and then he would go back to work. Uh, so that was my dad. Um, anyway, so grew up in Iran, finished high school without getting into too much detail. And I migrated to the United States in 1984. That's five years after the revolution. Uh, during the Iran-Iraqi war, I uh, was, again, lucky and blessed enough to have taken, then there was an aptitude test that the government of Iran at the time was conducting, and they would allow the top 500 students in the entire country to leave the country with the promise of going back. So anybody who had any desire to leave the country will take the test. So not every high school student, high school graduate would take it, but if you wanted to leave the country to study and you had graduated from high school, you would take it. So several thousands, probably more than a million people took the test. But really interesting, I didn't want to take the test. Uh, I remember now that uh, the only reason I took the test is because my brother, who's a year younger than me, he enrolled me. He registered me for the test. Uh, he said, you should take the test. You deserve it. Anyway, he encouraged me. And even when the test results came out, it's really interesting. You're really making me reminisce. I didn't look at the results. I didn't know that I had scored. If I'm not mistaken, I was number, I want to say I was number 64 out of the 500. Um, at the time, I had graduated from high school. I was working in a pharmacy. I was a cashier at the pharmacy. The owner of the pharmacy had gotten the paper, looked for my name, and he saw it. And he gave me, he brought the newspaper to our home. I'm getting emotional. I had completely forgotten about this. Sorry. Yeah, he brought the paper to our home, and I actually gave it to my mom. And... That's how I found out. But anyways, um, um, I took the test after high school, did well. I was allowed to leave. My, my dad told me, he said, son, do not come back. Uh, that was his parting words to me. But the test was only the first step. So I had the government's permission to leave the country, but, you know, uh, no money to do it. Um, and I really wanted to come to the United States. Uh, I had always admired the United, United States. Remember in the Shah's time, you know, we were close allies. And from a very early 
age, I knew that I wanted to be a doctor. I was probably six years old, and I wanted to be a doctor. And then I shared this story as well that when I was 13, I saw this movie dubbed in Farsi by uh, Alan Alda called The Glass House. And in that movie, he is a PhD of some sort, and at the beginning of the movie, his wife and daughter, something like that, get run over by a car, you know, in a moment of rage, he struggles with the guy, and the guy gets killed or injured. But anyways, he ends up in prison for a year. And uh, while he's in prison, he really uh, develops an affinity for the prisoners and wants to help them. And, you know, he, there were a lot of shenanigans happening inside the prison with the, war the warden and everybody. And uh, at the end of the movie, he gets killed by accident. Uh, but for whatever reason... That movie made an impression on me that not only I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to be a doctor in the United States, and I wanted to work inside the jail. So that was my mission. So I passed the test. There are no American embassies in Iran because this is after the hostages, so I have to go somewhere else, and somewhere else happens to be Zurich, Switzerland. I don't speak the language. I don't speak English. I'm there, frightened, uh, you know, at the time, as you can imagine, there were not a lot of Iranians were getting visas to come to the United States. So I show up to the American embassy, and uh, the person who is in charge of my visa actually happens to be an ex-hostage. Um, so he looks at my grades, you know, he likes my grades, and because I had an admission to Our Lady of the Lake University for English as a foreign language. Our Lady of the Lake University is a very small Catholic college in uh, San Antonio. Why is a Shiite Muslim from Iran going to a Catholic college. And I responded, what is Catholic? Because I had no clue. He started laughing. He really realized how naive I was. He said, you know what? I think you're legit. Come back in a week. We'll get you a visa. So that's how I got my student visa to the United States in 1984. From then on, it was clear sailing. What else could possibly happen to a naive kid from Iran showing up in the heart of Texas in the mid-1980s? I got on the plane, I arrived in San Antonio uh, in March of 1984, and it's after midnight, don't speak the language, I have $75 in my pocket, I have a suitcase, don't know anyone, but I had heard, do not get in a taxi cab because they're going to rip you off, and just go to downtown and find a cheap motel, wait for the school opens, because uh, my, my session, my semester didn't start till May of that year. Uh, so I'm standing at a bus stop. This lady comes, tries to explain to me that there are no buses at midnight, that I need to go somewhere else. I said, I don't have any place to go. I'm trying to explain to her. While we're trying to make each other understand, this taxi cab pulls over. He comes out, he looks at me, and he thinks uh, I'm Arab. So he tries to say hello to me in Arabic, but in a terrible accent. So I tell the guy, are you Iranian? He said, yes. I said, oh my God, you got to help me. And you've got to realize, you know, San Antonio in 1984, there's not a lot of Iranians in San Antonio, but I just happened to get the Iranian taxi driver that night. He did. He took care of me. He took me to his apartment, took care of me until the school opened in May, took me to school, and, you know, the rest, uh, the rest is history. Do you ever, as you sit here in your office of a 10, running a 10,000-person organization that is, you know, critical of the community, trying to raise billions of dollars in bonds, is it ever sort of an out-of-body experience thing about, like, how you got here? Every day. Every day. I have that experience every morning driving to work. Uh, I do want to ask you about, did you ever end up uh, working in prisons? Yes, I did. So through my residency, the second year of residency, I couldn't wait to start moonlighting. 
Uh, so I get my Texas license, I get my own DEA, and my first moonlighting job is at Harris County Jail. So I started working at nights and weekends at Harris County Jail, and after I finished my training, I was the chief medical resident, then a faculty with UT uh, running the emergency room at LBJ. After that, for 10 years, I took care of inmates at Harris County Jail. So I finally achieved my dream of working inside a jail in the United States taking care of inmates. Uh, can I just ask you about, um, at the risk of getting a little personal again, uh, your family back in Iran? Are yeah. they, they're all still there, the ones? Uh, they are. So my parents have passed. Uh, my, 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 uh, I had, my sisters are still back home. My brothers are back home. Um, and, and they're okay. They're okay. You know, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, the last time I visited home, it's like in four years ago, maybe. Uh, for a lot of reasons, it, it, it's just not possible for me to visit, uh, which is, you know, just makes it very difficult. Work for Porsa remains a central focus of his life, even as his personal calendar is flipped into the 60s. It's not that unusual anymore. A full one-third of elder adults say they never want to retire. Some of that is pure economics, a recognition of the financial requirements of longer lives. But for others, it's a labor of love a way to maintain purpose and fulfillment in defiance of arbitrary and perhaps outdated rules of retirement. For Porsa, that means envisioning and building a new Harris Health. You know, one of the things that, you know, you, you talked about how is Harris Health different uh, from 60 years ago, you know, unfortunately, one of the things is that it hasn't really much changed. You know, the hospitals that we have today are over 30 years old. We have some clinics that are over 50 years old. Uh, we have infrastructure that is crumpling. Uh, we have uh, a, a, a capacity issue. You know, every day we have patients in our emergency rooms that are waiting to get admitted to a hospital bed uh, in, our, in the hospitals. There are no hospital beds. We have patients in the hallways because there are no hospital rooms. On November 7th, several weeks after this interview, the voters of Harris County overwhelmingly approved the $2.5 billion bond issue for a vast expansion and renovation of Harris Health facilities, in effect firing a starter's pistol on a race to transform public health care in Houston. You know, it, it's not about having a um, shiny new building, even though I think our patients and our employees deserve that. It's about creating a capacity so that, you know, our doctors and our nurses don't have to be confronted with a bottled up system. Uh, the patients can't move forward. Uh, you know, everybody's backed up in our emergency rooms. Patients have to wait sometimes more than 24 hours uh, to be seen in the emergency room. That should not be happening. And the way I've said it is that just because you're uninsured, it doesn't mean that you're less. So how is it going to be different 10 or 12 years from now, once we have uh, done everything that we have promised the county residents? We will have new facilities with state-of-the-art equipment, we already have top-of-line physicians and nurses and techs so that they can provide even higher quality, safer care than they do today. There's a lot of work to be done, but it hasn't completely stopped Porza from thinking about what he will do in retirement, especially when it comes to some hope for, though currently non-existent, grandchildren from his daughter. Uh, she's a second-year residency that, you know, in the fourth-year residency, they're going to get engaged. Then they're going to get married, uh, you know, during her fourth year when, you know, things are not so crazy. So, honey, you know, your mom and I really want grandkids. 
And she said, well, Dad, I'm only 26. I said, well, I'm 60. <laughs> so to your point, what do I worry about getting old? It's missing out on those things because I coached soccer. Uh, actually, my son, when he was three years old, I was his first coach. I coached him until he was seven, and then he became too good for me. Uh, so he started, you know, club soccer. But my, one of my vision boards is actually coaching my grandson and granddaughter uh, for their soccer team. That's one of the things I would really like to do. Coaching youth soccer may be on a hold for a bit, though, because it's a huge task to transform a massive public health system like Harris Health. But perhaps there are larger forces at work on his side. Or at least that's a question that piqued the interest of my producer, Carrie Thompson. I'm actually mostly curious about the cab driver who picked up. Were you, were you able to keep in touch with him? You know, I don't want to get, you know, like a, a paranormal thing. Uh, but, you know, when he dropped me off at the school, I never saw him again. I never saw him again, never heard of him again. Were you thinking maybe he didn't exist in the first place? <laughs> no, no, I, I can't say that. But, you know, like I said, all my, all my teachers were nuns. Uh, and, of course, you know, I tell the story to, you know, all the nuns at school. And, you know, they'll say, oh, my God, you know, he was an angel. Probably not because almost every day at noon he would bring a hooker to the apartment and he would ask me to leave the apartment for an hour. So probably <laughs> if, if he wasn't, he was an angel to me, but probably not an angel in the traditional sense. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camilo Garzon. Music for this episode was provided by Audio Jungle and Ramteen Arablui. Support for this podcast comes from Corbridge Financial, making it possible for more people to take action in their financial lives for today and tomorrow. Learn more at CorbridgeFinancial.com. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.